Good morning. We are going to be pausing in our series now in the book of Daniel as we're moving into this holiday season. Today we're going to be looking very carefully at a psalm that is dedicated to the whole subject of thanksgiving. And so I'd like for you to join with me as we're turning to Psalm 116. There are two types of thanksgiving psalms found in the Bible. One deals with describing who God is, and those are known as descriptive thanksgiving psalms. The other deals with what God has done, and those are known as declarative thanksgiving psalms. Now, we're looking at the whole idea of what God has done. It's a declaration, and it's done publicly because evidently there is a thanksgiving service we're going to be exploring in these verses. And this psalmist has made his way to Jerusalem to offer a thanks offering to God the Father for what God has done in intervening in his life. What I'd love for you to do as we explore these verses together and prep our hearts for what's coming our way in the course of this week is to look for yourself in these verses. Look on the timeline of your life for the various places in which God broke in. God intervened. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that time where you came to saving faith and the events and the dynamics surrounding it. Look for those places where the unexpected occurred and God decided to sovereignly make a difference in the course of your life. So with that in mind, I'd like to begin reading now in verse 1. I want you to bear in mind that this psalm, in essence, was provided to people in Jerusalem that had gathered together for a thanksgiving service, where I read, I love the Lord, because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. 
I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And call on the name of the Lord. I will repay, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So we're going to be looking at these verses and more in these minutes together as we're entering into this week of thanksgiving, asking God to give us insight. Let's look to our Lord. Father, on this Lord's Day, as we enter into your presence, there's going to be a wide range of emotions wrapped into this weekend. For some, there's going to be a sense of coming, people gathering, and gathering in larger and larger numbers as the days go by. But there's also going to be that one who's going to look across the table and the chair is empty. Because while that chair was full last year with a a voice, with a laughter, with a heartfelt joy, one that knew you, that person is now with you. There's this tremendous sense of tension in the holiday season of the comings and goings and the dynamics of life. And we need to be able to make sense of it and to make sense of it through your word, which is why we open up your word and ask you to speak to us at our point of need. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here again to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was prepping my heart this week for the study from Psalm 116, my mind went back to something I clipped out years ago from World War II episodes. The story is the Teresa Boyle, a ship out in the North Sea, sunk by a Nazi bomber. The crew of ten were able to get away in their lifeboat. It was only a small boat. For hours they rowed about hoping that somebody, somebody would be able to spot them and rescue them. It's cold, terribly cold, and they lacked food. Forty hours went by, and still nobody had sighted this boat. And so as the weary hours dragged on, some of them became so exhausted that they could no longer row. Ten more hours passed, seemed even longer than that, and still the hope was beginning to fade. When off in the distance, there was this airplane that was seen, and their hearts beat, but the question was, friend or foe? Now, soon they were going to recognize that it was friend, but then the question was, 
Well, would they be seen? Well, the keen eye of the pilot on patrol didn't miss them. And although the boat was being buffeted by the waves, and by this time eight of the men were lying on the floor bed, too weak to even row, just able to wave anxiously at the pilot, the plane flew low. The men realized that they had been seen, and then all of a sudden off went the plane, but it went off in search of help. It found two minesweepers some 15 miles away and asked them by lamp signals to follow it. Now, by firing colored lights, the pilot guide the minesweepers to the open boat. It circled, circled round and round until the men, the entire crew of the sunken trawler, were delivered. And then it flew off. But after going two miles, a signal lamp from one rescue ship recalled the plane. Anything wrong? signaled the pilot. No, the reply flickered. These men we picked up just wanted to say thank you to their deliverer. This psalm we're looking at is a way in which this psalmist right after a tremendous episode of crisis intervention, is finding a way to be able to say thank you to his deliverer. What I want to do with you is to personalize this. I want us to stretch out the points on the timeline of our lives, past to present. And in order to equip us for the future, we're going to now look at three significant reasons why you and I are called to give thanks to God as a spiritual discipline, not merely on a designated holiday, but as a devotion for the entire scan and scope of a year. Three reasons for giving thanks to God, and the first flows out of verse 1, down through verse 4. We're going to put it like this. The number one, we give thanks to God for he has heard our prayers. Now notice how this begins. I love the Lord. You're going to notice that 16 times minimum, at least in these verses, from Hebrew on into English, there is a personal pronoun utilized to describe the relationship of this individual to God. But what also interests us is that Lord is capitalized, isn't it? L-O-R-D. This is the covenantal relational name for God used in the Scriptures. And now with this relationship cemented in the ears and in the minds of the public that are pondering the testimony of thanksgiving coming from the lips of this psalmist, beginning with the I love the Lord statement, he now gives us 
two reasons why he loves the Lord. It's highly relational here. He says, he has, he has heard my voice in my pleas for mercy. In other words, there is a voice recognition here. That standing out in the crowd and sitting furthermore among the people, what God has the capacity to be able to do is to personalize each and every call, each and every voice, each and every cry. And he knows the distinctive voice that flows and comes, not merely from your lips, but comes from your heart, you see. Now, I want you to pause at this point and ask yourself some questions. On the timeline of your life, as you begin to cry out to God for intervention, how have you been able to personalize this? Have you come to that realization that there is voice recognition as the multitude of believers globally are seeking intervention from the God who's the great interventionist? But notice with me, not only does he say, he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, he also says in verse 2, because he inclined his ear to me. The word inclined comes from the Hebrew word nata. It means from the Hebrew to bend, to turn aside. That in your moment of crisis, it's not that God is turning his back from you. It is that he is turning his ear toward you. It was Friday afternoon, and I was about ready to oversee another funeral. And as I was about ready to speak, I was pondering something that had taken place just prior to the start of the service. There was an elderly gentleman that had made his way up to pay his respects. What interested me was this elderly man, as he made his way up to pay respects, looked off into the distance, leaned forward, and put his ear close. Now, if one didn't know the context and was standing from a distance, it would look as though he was indifferent, that he was just simply looking away from. In reality, what he was doing was that he was bending his ear toward. Personalize it. In your own timeline of life experiences, bear in mind you may have had the tendency that God was indifferent in looking away from your crisis. When in reality, he was bending his ear into your crisis. And there's voice recognition. And when he doesn't hear it from the lips, it's because he knows the voice of the heart. 
So now you couple together those phrases. He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me, and now a dedication moment. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live, he says. Now, after establishing that relational dynamic, as you're looking at the the timeline of your life and the various points of interventional moments, He moves us from the relational in verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 and on into verse 4 and so on. And now he gives us the reasons why he's going to call on him as long as I live. In verse 3, he says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Stop right there. This is what's dubbed Hunter's Weekend, of course. There are those from our congregation that are elsewhere, and they're they're looking for the game. What this is at this point right now is a description of a one who's being hunted down by life. And as he's being hunted down by life, he's saying, the snares of death have encompassed me. He's getting closed in, you see. And furthermore, there's the pangs. The pangs of shale laid hold on me. I mean, there's a grip. It carries out the idea of an intense grip on him at this point. So much so, with that dual description of being hunted down, What he's going to have to say at this point is he's being pulled into this utter darkness. I suffer distress. This is not simple stress. This is distress. He doesn't say I simply endured it. He said I suffer this. And now as he shares his Thanksgiving testimony in the city of Jerusalem, I can imagine all those who have their own timelines that are bending their own ear forward to listen carefully as this kind of resonates with their souls as they deal with the crises of their own lives, you see. And then, astoundingly, he tells us, I called on the name of the Lord. In verse 4, the word called is an imperfect verb. It means literally, I called and kept calling. And I keep calling on the name of the Lord. Ever been prone to give up on God? Here's a man who understands the interventional timeline of relationship with God, where it seems as though the issues of life have so crowded him in, and the death snare is beginning to pull him down, and he says, I want you to know publicly, I'm not keeping this private. But rather in public, I called and kept on calling on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my souls. 
my soul. My files, I was reminded of a story from back in the days of the Eisenhower era. Caroline Miller, 12-year-old Maryland at that time, had a heart condition. It required specialized dangerous surgery at that time period of history. She had that rare type of blood, being negative, needed for transfusion before the surgeons could attempt the operation. And so she told her mother, I am going to write President Eisenhower. I'm going to ask him to help me get the needed blood. And so she wrote him. Dear Mr. President, the surgeons want to close up a hole in my heart. If you know anyone who has been negative blood, please call my mom. It's very important. Well, the girl's plea touched Ike's heart, and he had the Red Cross contacted. The doctors at Walter Reed Hospital put on notice, and soon 20 pints of the required blood were made available to Carol Ann's surgeons. She had that sense of knowing where to turn in the midst of her crisis. Now, what the psalmist is doing for you and for me as he goes public with the fact that there is an interventionist in the midst of life crises is to inform us. You begin relational. I love the Lord. You've got a capital L-O-R-D on your hands here. And he starts with the relational before he goes to the reason. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of shale laid hold on me. What am I going to do with that kind of experience where I suffer not simply distress, but distress and anguish? Here's what he did. He goes to that ultimate resource. I called, and literally from the Hebrew, kept on calling, and will keep on calling on the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, And here was his heartfelt voice recognition prayer. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I would have prayed, O Lord, I pray, deliver my body. For reasons known by the sovereign workings of the Holy Spirit, The prayer was, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul at this point. And what you and I see here at this very moment is a man who is simply going to give testimony to the fact that he's dealing with the ultimate issues of life, and he's doing it in a relational context. Are you doing that? Now, as you explore the timeline of your own life, the various points of interventions, where you can't always be able to answer the question, why? Are you able to answer the question, who? Who did I rely on and who do I turn to? Because in the bigger issues of life, it is not the explanations that will get us through. It is the relationship with the Lord that sees us through. Otherwise, we'll put our trust in the explanations rather than in the interventionist himself. 
We give thanks to God, number one, for he has heard our prayers, verse 1 down to verse 4. But as you're processing that with me, and I'm doing that, and I am stretching out the points on the timeline of my own personal experience with God, and I pray you are too. Here now is a second reason for giving thanks to God in the midst of the crises of life. But number two, we give thanks to God for he has intervened in our lives. In verse 5, what he will do is he is going to provide you, and he's going to provide me a threefold description of God. In other words, before he talks about deliverance by God, he wants to talk about his understanding, his description of God. You've got to get it right regarding who God is before you begin to talk about what God does. And he's got it. Do you? Notice what he says in verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. In triplet form, he says, the Lord is gracious, the Lord is righteous, the Lord is merciful. At this point, what I do, and probably you are too, is we're pausing and we're saying to ourselves, you know, biblically, there is a relationship between biblical grace and biblical gratitude. And there is an incredible disconnect between biblical grace and a lack of gratitude which begins to force the question, why is it that some believers may not be prone to be grateful for what God has provided in terms of grace? That's a significant question that you and I have got to be able to ask ourselves. Here are two possibilities that I penned during the course of this week. Why is it that some believers may not be grateful for grace? One reason, they feel as though they're not getting enough of what they deserve. We're not getting enough of what we think we deserve. The other, where we feel we're getting too much of what we don't deserve. When we feel we're not getting enough of what we do deserve, and we're getting too much of what we don't deserve, but what do those two statements have in common? The word I deserve, deserve. But what is grace? Undeserved. It is the undeserved merit by which what God has done through the finished work of Jesus Christ is credited to this sinner's life, you see. I do not deserve anything but damnation. But by the grace of God, he rescues me via the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there needs to be a connect between grace, biblical grace, and personal gratitude. Because where there is a disconnect in our lives, we're overwhelmed then by life experiences, emotionally, where we feel as though we're not getting enough of what we deserve. 
And furthermore, we're getting too much of what we don't deserve, and we haven't taken time to ponder the one who died on that cross and ask, did he deserve that? Yet he took it on for us who don't deserve it. Salvation by grace alone. You know, the first Thanksgiving, the first American Thanksgiving, was celebrated within sight of 40 graves in the Plymouth Cemetery, while 55 English-speaking people gathered together, pilgrim exiles, to praise God. And how do you go about praising God in the midst of the give and the take of life itself? So the psalmist is being real. And now in that Thanksgiving service in Jerusalem, he offers the description of God's greatness in verse 5 before he begins to talk about the deliverance by God's grace in 6 to 9. In verse 6, he says this, The Lord preserves the simple When I was brought low, he saved me. And I looked at that word simple, and I asked, well, why does he say that? Could it be that he, at a certain point in time, had made himself vulnerable, had made himself gullible, so it seems? And in the midst of it all, where he had he had found himself to be rather simple in his ways. He put faith and trust in someone or something that let him down. And now he looks back at that point on his timeline of experiences and says, the Lord preserved me in my simpleness. When I was brought low, he saved me. And then in verse 7, and this is brilliant at this point, what he does. He, in essence, offers counsel to his soul. Return, he says. Return, O my soul, to your rest. In other words, he must be panting heavily because the crisis has just occurred, and he's still trying to catch his breath. And now what he's going to have to do is to speak objectively. And what he's going to do furthermore is to call for a return. He's going to try to create a sense of equilibrium between the outer and the inner worlds of his life. Letty Coleman, in her incredible book, Springs in the Valley, describes a scene that helps us understand this. Evidently, there was an African tribe that had gone through some kind of terrorist experience. And they were having to move quickly away from their home setting. She writes, the first day they marched rapidly and went far. The traveler had high hopes of a speedy journey, but the second morning 
these tribesmen refused to move. For some strange reason, they just sat and rested. And when asked why, they were informed that they had gone too fast the first day and that now they were waiting for their souls to catch up with their bodies. Has there been, is there a disconnect between your soul and your body? Mrs. Coleman then offers this penetrating thought. That the crisis of life which so many of us endure does for us what that first march did for these tribesmen. The difference? They knew what they needed to restore life's balance. Too often, we do not. Is there an imbalance in your life experience now? A disconnect between soul and body? A crisis that needs to be reconnected? He offers intense, wise counsel to his soul. It's coming from him, not from others. This is soul counsel. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The word bountiful carries the idea of an overflowing cup. Yet in verse 8, he adds, For you have delivered my soul from death, my my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Next to verse 8, ponder the fact that in Psalm 56, verse 13, Similar words were used, but something is missing. He must have been meditating, allowing a psalm to help him to pen this psalm. In Psalm 56, verse 13, it's written, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling. What's missing? He is intently and intentionally added and personalized my eyes from tears in verse 8. It's not found in Psalm 56, verse 13. This is his own by God's sovereign movings of the Holy Spirit in addition. And now he offers a triplet in response to the triplet description of God back in verse 5. Here's the triplet of his experience in verse 8. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from tumbling, from stumbling. At this moment, I can, I can almost imagine the Kleenex out there in the temple in, in, in Jerusalem. You see, he adds that for those that have got tears now rolling down their cheeks as they're pondering the timeline of their lives and where the interventionist broke in. And they're beginning to ask themselves the tough questions. Have I been living as though I'm not getting enough of what I deserve? And am I 
Am I feeling as though I'm getting too much of what I don't deserve? But here he says in verse 9, I'll walk before the Lord in the land of the living. A critical statement. In verse 5, he had begun with the description of God's greatness. Then in verse 6 to 9, he then moved to the deliverance by God's grace. But now here in verse 10, 11, he offers the decision for God's glory, and it's personal. There's that I would again. In the midst of his crisis moment, he informs this in a testimonial gathering. I believe. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Forcing you, forcing me now to ask ourselves the tough question, in that crisis moment when I am so greatly afflicted, am I able to say, if not from my lips, but from my heart, I believe? The Apostle Paul quotes this very verse in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. And now you and I share outwardly what we have experienced personally. And you're able to say in the midst of the crisis, the crisis did not define my faith. The crisis simply revealed my faith and now gives me a public opportunity to be able to explain why I believe to those who have souls approaching death and tears rolling out of eyes and feet that are prone to stumble. He wants to share this good news. In our opening years, Pam and I were involved in church planting. And I remember there were two ladies. One was Donna, the other was Linda. And they were at our dining room table in Middletown, Connecticut. And God sovereignly was leading people to saving faith in Christ. And these two were incredibly interested and understanding grace. And Pam was in a, a, an adjacent room praying as they're at the table, and they begin to ask these questions, and then they pause, and then Donna asked to me once again to explain the name of that church. And the name of the church we planted in Connecticut was Valley Bible Evangelical Free Church. And she was having, as most New Englanders was, were, have, a very difficult time saying the word evangelical. It's a highly secular area of this nation. It just wasn't flowing natural for her. Even, 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 what? Evangelical, I would say several times. And then I got her back to the word. We reached a point where we made it personal, and I asked the question, is there anything in your life that would keep you from wanting to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And they looked at each other and said, no. So I asked, what about now? And so they bowed their heads and put their faith and trust in Jesus. 
and the tears were flowing. As soon as we were done praying, Donna looks up at me and she says, "Now that I'm a, now that I'm a, now that I'm an evan, evan, evangelist, what do I do now?" I think God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, had her wrestle with the wording because we worked with that word as to what you do next. What do you do next? As you ponder the great interventionist in your life. Well, here's the third reason that Flowing now out of verse 12 through 19 in rapid-fire succession, we give thanks to God for he is worthy of our praise. Question. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? This is not an entitlement-oriented person. This is not a rights-based individual. He understands he doesn't deserve grace. That's critical. So what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? And he's personal to me. In verse 13, what he offers you and offers me in the public thanksgiving service is a blend of the visual and the verbal. What's the visual? I'll lift up the cup of salvation. The verbal? Call on the name of the Lord. Out of that combination, in a testimony of thanksgiving, he says it in 14, he'll say it again in 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in my, in my private sector of life. No. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Verse 14. Verse 18. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Notice that it's his people. In other words, a testimony is not to be kept private. This God is worthy of being praised publicly. And so with that in mind, he collects his emotional resources. And then in verse 15, adds this profound statement. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If I had been penning these verses, I most likely would have written, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the life of his saints. But that just shows how sinful I am. For you see, the sovereign holy God breaks in with this wording, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because he knows that that door of death leads us into eternity with the second member of the Trinity having died for our sins, embracing us in triune fashion, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in the Godhead. And now I look across the landscape and I say, well, the table is going to have a chair that's empty at this Thanksgiving time. How am I going to be able to face that reality? And the psalmist, probably with a tear in his eye, says to you and says to me, 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a doorway into the Lord's presence. And so he collects his thoughts. And in verse 16, he says, Oh Lord, I'm your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you. And here it is. Here it is. The sacrifice of thanksgiving. And call on the name of the Lord. Where does he do this? In verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And now he becomes increasingly specific in the courts of the house of the Lord. He has made a trek all the way to Jerusalem. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And it flew off. And after going two miles, a signal lamp from one rescue ship recalled the plane. Anything wrong? signaled the pilot. No, the reply flickered. These men we picked up just wanted to say thank you to their deliverer. Are you doing that? Let's stand together. Whether we're standing or seated, we praise you. In a world of rights-oriented, entitlement-based living, we ask ourselves the tough questions. Have I been feeling as though I'm not getting enough of what I Have I been feeling as though I'm getting too much of what I don't deserve? And then at that ultimate point on the timeline of life, you take me to Calvary, where grace is revealed in all of its multicolored glory. And I make the connection. Gratitude. Deep rich biblical gratitude for your grace. I offer thanksgiving, not merely privately, but publicly, for the God who reigns over my life. And for this, we give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.